and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 4. Before we enter into probably a three-part series on these verses, we are taking some time to look at them in a little bit more detail than we perhaps might do through a regular series through the book of Matthew. And what I want to do tonight is take a look at and really remind us of the nature of the evil one. We are regularly faced with evil. And yet I think that we regularly underestimate the times that we are faced with evil and the times that in many unwitting ways we become instruments of the very evil one that we would not ever think about doing anything that he would tell us to do. So tonight I want to look at that nature. Let's look at the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. We are regularly faced with temptation And what we see here is that immediately after being baptized, Jesus came up out of the water. Verse 16, Behold, the heavens were open, and He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him. That dove probably symbolized sacrifice. And if you remember in the Old Testament that those who were poor could actually bring a dove for an offering. So this lighting of the Holy Spirit upon the Lord, if we're correct with that symbolism, is that He was anointed for sacrifice coming out of this baptism. 
And when that happened, verse 17, behold, now look at this, a voice came out of the heavens and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's actually a quotation out of the prophet Isaiah that God the Father spoke to God the Son to remind him of him being the servant as is mentioned in the prophet Isaiah. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, then, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Now we learned that there is some discontinuity between what is happening to the Lord and what happens in believers' lives. There is uniqueness to Him. For instance, you probably, I would probably say definitely, will not be taken up to a high mountain, shown all the kingdoms of the world, and all of them and their glory be offered to you. That's exactly what happened to the Son of Man. You probably will not face the evil one personally and directly. And more than likely, you will not be led into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights for the extreme purpose of being tempted. So there is discontinuity between Jesus being tempted led into wilderness to be tempted by the devil and ourselves. In fact, go over a couple of chapters just to refresh our memory. In Matthew chapter 6, our Lord in the model prayer tells us to pray that we not be led into temptation in the same manner that He was. You'll note in Matthew 6 and verse 9, pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation. Now who are we praying to in Matthew 6? God God the Father. And it was God the Father through the Spirit of God that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And our Lord expressively in the model prayer tells us to pray this way. Father, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that word evil could be translated the evil one. So our Lord expressly tells us to pray that not to happen to us. And did it happen to someone here in the book of Matthew? And for that, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 26 and remind us of the Garden of Gethsemane and our Lord approaching those men, those men who had been up all day. It's now late at night. And in Matthew 26, and in verse 41 of this book, our Lord tells them, keep watching and praying 
that you may not enter into what? Temptation. And so here we have our Lord being led up by the Spirit to be tempted. He tells us in our model prayer to pray that we not be led into temptation. And here, when He tells the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray, He tells them, now stay awake, be alert, be watchful, and this is what I want you to pray. Pray that you not be led into temptation. And of course, Peter expressly was, wasn't he? Because after our Lord was taken, He enters into that courtyard and He is put in a very compressing situation. And He's asked three times whether or not He was a disciple of Christ and He says what? He says, I am not. And on the third time, He even said it with an oath and the cock crew. And when that rooster crowed and he looked up, our Lord was being taken from one place of judgment into another place of judgment and there was like a bridge between the two houses. And our Lord was right there and the Bible says that He looked upon Peter. What would that look look like? How would you feel after being looked at like that? Peter should have been praying, Lord, lead me not into temptation. And the fact of the matter is, is that they were willing, were they not? They were willing to do this. It wasn't an act of rebellion. But their flesh was weak. It was late at night. They were tired from sorrow and from the events of the day. And folks, we are that way. We are weak, are we not? And we don't pray. We don't know how to pray as we ought. We get put into situations where we're not cognizant of what's happening in that situation and we fail. And we're led into places of temptation thinking that we're not. And so there is discontinuity between our Lord's situation and our situation, but there is some continuity here that we can draw as a lesson from our Lord's confrontation with the evil one. And we learned last time that what a believer is to do is to stand. Having done all, to stand... And then the New Testament tells us, resist. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. And the way we resist is by the previous verse. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In other words, we yield ourselves to be walking in the fruit of the Spirit, to be walking in His pathways, or as Bunyan said in Pilgrim's Progress, on the pathway of holiness. And having done all, we stand and we resist, and the devil will eventually flee from us. We're not to plead the blood. We're not to call down 
millions of angels to come against this. We're not to do what Martin Luther did and got so mad at the devil, he threw his inkwell at him that he was writing. That doesn't do anything. But we are to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now what Satan is going to do here is something that he does to many believers. And that is, the devil is going to question Jesus' relationship to the Father. He's going to question His Sonship. And you'll notice that in verse 3, the tempter came and said to Him, If you are the Son of God. Now God the Father had just said to him, This is my beloved what? Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately what the devil does in light of the deprivations that the Son of God is in, he hasn't eaten for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. Here he is in the wilderness. And the first thing the tempter does is cast doubt upon the father-son relationship. And Satan does that with us. He does it again in verse 6. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. And he questions the father-son relationship. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for it is what? It is written. He actually quotes the Word of God to him. And of course, you know, neither one of those attempts had very much success. And in the third temptation... The devil doesn't cast doubt upon their father-son relationship. He just comes out very boldly and tells him to worship him. To bow his knee and worship him. He takes him up to a very high mountain. We don't know what that high mountain is. I have speculations about that, but we'll see that when we get there. And the devil begins in verse 9. He didn't begin, well, if you are the Son of God, all this I'll give to you. No, he just says, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus answered in a very angry demeanor. That's instructive, isn't it? There are thoughts that come into our minds that we should answer with anger. And this is one of them. Now anytime we approach these passages, there is a very natural question about whether Jesus could sin or not. In other words, the devil's tempting him to what? To sin. Is this a real temptation? 
Could Jesus have sinned? There's a fancy word that we use that, and that is peccability, a very theological word. And then there's impeccability, meaning the ability not to sin. And I won't ask for a raise of hands, but could Jesus have sinned here? Most people, I think, when they view this temptation and they ask themselves, could Jesus have sinned? In other words, does He have the ability to sin? Most people, I would say those as long as I've lived, view that question under the light of His deity. So let me reframe it. Can God sin? No. God doesn't have the ability to sin. So in that sense, most people, if you would ask, bring up this situation, and you would ask them, does Jesus have the ability to sin? Is this temptation really real? They would say, no, Jesus did not have the ability to sin, that He is impeccable. And they would be right, in that framework. But I want to read to you, it's a little extended paragraph, but I want to read to you what D.A. Carson says about this. Now, D.A. Carson is a very well much respectable, conservative Bible commentator, very highly respected. And I want to read to you what he said in his commentary about this. I think it's helpful. The question of the impeccability of Christ is much discussed in older literature, but is of doubtful concern to Matthew. In other words, Matthew's really not commenting on whether he is peccable or impeccable, whether he has the ability to sin or not. The problem is partly definitional. To say Christ could not sin does not resolve the nature of the impossibility and many writers throughout Christian history have said, and I'm quoting, Jesus could not sin because He would not sin. Now think about that statement. What are you balancing in the equation when you say he could not sin because he would not sin? What are you balancing? You are balancing the fact that he is fully God. Amen? Fully God. But he's also fully man. Everybody see that? And there's mystery here. Okay? I want to continue reading. Many writers have said he could not sin because he would not. But at a deeper level, the problem concerns the truth of the incarnation and how to formulate it. The New Testament documents affirm both Jesus' deity and his humanity. And neither of these affirmations may be permitted to deny each other. 
One might argue that Christ's impeccability, his ability not to sin, is a function of his deity, but it must not be taken to mitigate his humanity. And Christ's temptability is a function not of his deity, but of his humanity. But his humanity must not be taken to the place where you mitigate his deity. So I think that when he says that Christ could not sin because he would not sin, is probably as close to the truth as we can get to it with our finite understanding. So you don't want to just rest on his deity even though he's fully God, you've got to hold together he's also fully human. And the Bible says he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without what? Without sin. And so were the temptations real? I would say yes. Did he succumb to those temptations? The answer to that is no. And however you wish to balance those two things, I'll let you argue with that in your own mind on how to do that. But Christ could not sin because He would not. Is very, very close to balancing those two facts about the Son of Man. This temptation is a temptation of Jesus in His humanity. Now, there was one who was doing the tempting. And in this passage, there are three descriptions of this evil one. You'll notice in verse 10, Jesus says to him, Go, Satan. So there's one name of this evil one. In verse 3, He's called what? The tempter. And the remaining references to him, he is called the devil. And you'll see that in verse 1, excuse me, in verse 5, verse 8, and in verse 11. So very, very briefly, I want to bring out just a few of the characteristics of each one of these for our edification and understanding here this afternoon. He is called the devil. Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In verse 5, the devil took him into the holy city. In verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And in verse 11, the devil left him. When we're talking about the word devil, the word fundamentally means one who engages in slander or the slanderer. What it does it mean if I slander someone? Well, slander is a false statement about someone 
that is damaging, I'm giving a modern day definition, which is damaging to another person's reputation. So in other words, someone generates a statement about someone, they conjure up something they may think is happening or not happening, and then their aim is to degrade the other person. Have you ever been slandered? I would say most of us would nod our head what? Yes, we have been slandered. And if you haven't been, then thank the Lord that you're not aware of it. <laughs> the devil is a slanderer. <clears throat> and you think about a false statement that is potentially damaging to another person's reputation, just the fact that the devil doubts Jesus' sonship is a slander. Because Jesus' sonship was without question. He even had a voice from heaven to affirm it. One of the ways that Satan does this is by casting doubt on another person. Or to cast in the mind of someone suspicion about the other person. Or to question another person's motive. Why they've said what they said or did what they did. This type of slander goes on every day in this world. Do you think that we have any representatives in government that spend their governmental ministry slandering someone else? Yes or no? Yes. yes. All the time. But where that shouldn't be at is in the house of God. Now Satan is a slanderer, and as I was reviewing for this this afternoon, I was reminded of another good friend of mine, since I just listened to another good friend of mine many years ago, and his name was John Long. John Long preached here. We support him as a missionary. Charles, Charles Long. John Long. <laughs> I always called him Brother Long. But uh, anyway, he came and preached here, and he preached a famous message that the only thing that I remember is the refrain. I don't even remember the passage that he preached it from because he must have said it 50,000 times. And I'm only a little bit exaggerating. And he made this statement. God uses people. Is that right? And then he preached for a little while. He said, oh, did I ever tell you? God uses people. And of course, the point of the message was he wants to use, he wants to use us. Well, the devil uses people. And he is a slanderer. This is his nature. <coughs> this is his involuntary reaction to things. That's what we mean when we say a nature. 
duck has a nature and because a duck has a nature it does duck things and quacks. Dogs have a nature and they do dog things. Cats have a nature, they do whatever they want. <laughs> but in any case, everybody responds ultimately according to our, to our nature. This is his nature. He is a slanderer. And I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 12 because he is still engaged in this type of slander even while we are speaking. <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 12, <clears throat> and in verse 7. Now there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. There's another name for the evil one. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, it's taking us back to the Garden of Eden, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. There's another part of his nature. He's deceptive, who deceives the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of who? Our brethren. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them, that is our brethren, before our God day and without stopping. And if you're a believer here today, this is what the devil's doing about you. Do you think he has things that he could accuse God about you about? What do you think? You might as well nod your head yes. The soul that sins shall die and the devil is before the throne of God pointing out our transgressions, telling God what His law says, and demanding what? Our condemnation. Aren't you glad our high priest is sitting at the right hand of the throne of majesty? And folks, we, we need to be very, very careful that we're not led into a temptation. And we've all fallen into this. Where we use our mouths to slander, to make accusations, to point out people's sins, 
and to demand God's justice upon them. Don't we know we do the very same things? Does not the Scripture say, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy? Now this doesn't mean that we deny the reality. There are transgressions that need to be addressed. But our spirit is not one of the devil. And if you trace this word throughout your New Testament, if you have a computer and you just put on and said, show me all the places in the Greek where the word devil is used, what you'll find is it's used in the pastoral epistles. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it in the English translation. It says that widows are not to be malicious gossips. If we were going to do that literally, it would be that widows should not be devilish speakers. And it's repeated again in the book of Titus. This is a common temptation among us. And it is the nature of the evil one. John chapter 8 and verse 44 says, The devil was a murderer from the beginning. How did he murder Adam and Eve? Now think about it. How did he murder Adam and Eve? He accused who? He accused God of withholding something from them. And he did it deceitfully. And he did it with cunning. And they voluntarily responded. And the whole human race fell. And what was the penalty for transgression? If you partake of this tree in dying surely, you shall surely what? You shall surely die. And they did die spiritually. But God had mercy on them, did He not? And God's had mercy on us. It was the devil who came to our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, in verse 3, he's called the tempter. It says the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. The word tempter fundamentally means to entice to improper behavior or to entice one to transgress. Let me quickly address something here. When the Lord, when God, 
by the Spirit, led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Was God enticing Jesus to improper behavior? Was He enticing Him to transgress? What do you think? The answer to that is no. James says that God tempts no man to transgress. Well, what was God the Father doing? God tempts in the sense of testing. Testing to show us as true. Jesus was being led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil to show that He is truly who He says He is. <clears throat> and when we are tested, and God will test us, it is not so that we will have improper behavior and transgress. It is in order to prove us genuine. And 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about that. And of course, who would be an outstanding example of this? We have a whole book named after him. That would be Job, would it not? God turns to the evil one and says, Have you considered my servant Job? And the devil took up the challenge. And God was seeking to show Job genuine, true. The devil was trying to get him to what? To transgress. And folks, when we get led into temptation, both of those things are operating. God wants to prove us genuine. The devil wants to get us to transgress. So when Jesus was led by the Spirit, <clears throat> it was to prove Jesus' faithfulness. It was to prove that He was genuine. It was not to cause Him to stumble. And Jesus did prove genuine, did He not? And thanks be to God, He becomes my substitute in this because I sometimes, maybe many times, fail. <clears throat> now when Satan, the devil, the tempter, come to entice the Son of Man to transgress, what the tempter utilizes in our life, according to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14, is he uses our natural desires. And we as lost people who still have the sin nature, even as a believer abiding in our flesh, he will also use unnatural desires. In other words, Satan uses our desires. Jesus did not have unnatural desires, but did he have natural desires? Yes or no? Yes. yes. For instance, was he hungry? That's a natural desire. 
if you go without food, correct? <coughs> and so the very first temptation, the devil is using, this tempter is using a natural desire to try to get Jesus to transgress. And this is what the tempter does with us. <clears throat> he utilizes our natural desires and until we see Christ, even our unnatural desires to entice us to sin. And we all know our propensities in our life. Now, did, you, did the devil secede? Well, he says, all right, you have a natural desire to eat bread. Turn these stones into bread. Did our Lord resist? Yes. And there's instruction in there for us. When he was given Scripture that was isolated out of the many Scriptures in our Bible to cast himself off, did he resist? He did resist. And Jesus told him to go, Satan. And Luke says that the devil left him until a more opportune moment. Have you ever noticed how many more opportune moments are written in the book of the gospel, the books of the gospel? You probably haven't because you're looking for the evil one. But how many times is it written? The Pharisees were tempting Him. Do you hear that? Or the Pharisees were testing Him. Should we pay tax to Caesar or not? Oh, that's a sly question, isn't it? And our Lord did not fall for the temptation. And of course, we have a very major moment where Satan does show up. And that brings us to our last label, and that's the word Satan in verse 10. <clears throat> then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan. The word Satan fundamentally means an adversary or an enemy. And folks, we need to understand that Satan is the enemy opposer of all things concerning God's works, of all things concerning God's providence, and all things concerning God's creation. Adam and Eve were created, and was he opposed to God about that? He slew our parents. What about the third of the angels? He slew them and brought them under condemnation. 
His nature is the enemy and opposer of all things God. And Satan desires people to worship and serve anything other than God. You don't have to be a, quote, Satan worshiper to serve the prince of the power of the air in this world. And here, here's an amazing thing. Satan can actually reward a person for following him. Did you notice that? Verse 9, All these things I will give you. And we can argue whether or not Jesus had the authority, I mean, Satan had the authority and the possession to do what he said. I think he did. But that is debatable. Many, many people have done this cliche they have sacrificed the permanent on the altar of the temporary. This is our enemy. This is one who opposes our every step. This is the one that will deceive you. He will seek to entice you. He will use your natural desires, your natural feelings to entice you. And many, many person has not thought that they had departed very, very far, but ten years from that decision, they are far away from where they were. Christian in Pilgrim's Progress just took one step off the pathway of holiness and ended up in Doubting Castle. Satan is wicked. He hates you. He doesn't hate you so much for you. He hates you because Christ is in you. He hates God. He's the opposer of God. And you're on God's side. And so therefore He hates you. He will do whatever He can. He will take a message from the Bible and it fall on hard soil and He will come and snatch the Word out of your heart. What's He afraid of? That Word would take root and grow and bear fruit. He's an opposer. Does that operate in preaching? Yeah. Well, every preacher who's preached for any length of time knows it does. But there's probably no more frightening situation of Satan showing up than in Matthew chapter 16. 
This will be our last passage that we turn to. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 16. Now you're familiar with this passage, I'm sure. This is the passage in which Peter makes that wonderful confession that Jesus is the Son of the living God. Our Lord turns to him and says that flesh and blood did not reveal that to Peter. Who did reveal that to him? My Father which is in heaven. Jesus turns to Peter and looks at him and says, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Verse 21. <clears throat> From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. <clears throat> Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, what? Now folks, you don't see this here in your translation, but the word get is the same word when Jesus said in Matthew 4, Go. What He's saying to Satan is, Get out from in front of Me. Because you're a stumbling block to the will of God. And get where? Behind Me. Stop impeding my progress. And he was angry about this. And in this case, it wasn't the devil personally, but it was the devil using Peter. Is Peter a believer? Yes. Who put in the mind of Peter now Peter probably thought, I love you, Lord. Please don't do this. But that statement was a statement of a person whose mind was not on God's interest. And brethren, it is true that our minds, oh, how fickle our minds are. And how little do we know of our Bibles? And how hard it is to hold all that we do know in, in tandem. And how hard it is for us to remember what we know. And none of us, none of us ever want to be a stumbling block.
Now folks, I'm reminding us of this because we are tempted daily. We don't have to be led into a, like a season of temptation. We have the world, the flesh, and the who? Devil. And he is an accuser and slanderer. And he is deceitful. And he will argue with you. He will engage you. Even about what the Bible says, he will engage you. He will tell you why you can't obey. He will give you feelings why you should not obey. He will entice us, all of us. Because He is the adversary of God. And He wants no light in His dark kingdom. And folks, you think about it, the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. The whole world lies in darkness. How much easier it is to deceive someone who can't see. And how hard it is to deceive someone who has light. And it's the entrance of your words, O oh God, that give me light. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And the church is called the light of the world. Brethren, we are living in enemy territory. One day we won't be. New heaven, new earth, no night there. Did you hear that? No night there. Only righteousness. That's where we're going. But we're pilgriming through the kingdom of the evil one. We've already been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. But we're on a journey. We're pilgrims to that heavenly land. We are susceptible to be led astray by our natural inclinations. Be careful. And we are living in a world of darkness. And if we neglect our Bibles, if we approach our Bible as a duty or as a check mark, we're not approaching our Bibles to know with all my heart what it is saying so that I can obey it. Then the light will be dim. And what we notice in Jesus' temptation, you'll notice in every case, He responds with what? What does He respond with in, this, in His temptations? With Scripture. And what we can take away from that is this. Is that in this life, in enemy territory, 
It is the Word of God that provides the framework for us to answer and guide our steps. We may not always have a specific verse for a specific situation, but we have the framework that gives us the understanding of the will of God. And may the Lord, may the Lord not lead us into temptation in the days and months and the year ahead. Let's go to our Lord in prayer.